Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss a topic that might be difficult for some to hear. So attend to your own needs and emotional responses in deciding whether to tune into our conversation. Today's topic is the troubling issue of physical self-harm among children. Dr. Donald Gradanus writes in the Psychiatric Times that deliberate self-harm is a behavior in which a person commits an act with the purpose of physically harming themselves, with or without a real intent of suicide. Doctors Joanne Dixon and Peter Taylor refer to self-harm as deliberate, physically injurious behavior that might include suicide attempts while non-suicidal self-injury refers more specifically to physical self-harm where there's no immediate intent to complete suicide. This is a weighty topic and one that's very difficult to understand. After all, as Dr. Joe Franklin from Cornell Research Program on Self-Injury and Recovery notes, most people go to great lengths to avoid pain and activities or experiences associated with pain. Evolutionarily, this makes sense. Pain is associated with injury and potential death, so the instinct to avoid pain is vital to the survival of the species. Despite the truth of this, the American Psychological Association found that approximately 17% of adolescents have engaged in self-injurious behavior. As many as 1.3% of children under the age of 10 have as well. Common deliberate self-injurious behaviors include cutting, hitting, biting, burning, eating disordered behavior, drug or alcohol overdose, hanging, shooting, and jumping from high places amongst many others. While suicidal intent may or may not be present during an incident of self-harm, the risk of eventual suicide or other premature death with individuals who engage in self-injurious behavior is high. Doctors Catherine Morgan, Roger T. Webb et al. found that children who had harmed themselves were over nine times more likely to die unnaturally during follow-up than their peers. Specifically, they were 17 times more likely to die by suicide, followed by fatal acute alcohol and drug poisoning. Countless studies, including by Dr. Donald Gradanus, have found strong correlations between self-harm and depression, low self-esteem, hopelessness, impulsivity, bullying, family dysfunction, 
poverty, and a history of childhood abuse. Difficulty with emotional regulation is a consistent underpinning of children who self-harm. Self-harm is an effort to cope with unmanageable emotional pain. While the effort might be maladaptive, it is also effective. Dr. Joe Franklin writes, one of the most common reasons individuals give for injuring themselves is that it reduces emotional pain. That may be because the physical pain relief that follows a self-injury event, the relief when the physical pain is over, basically tricks the brain into perceiving relief for emotional pain too. Unfortunately, that relief is temporary and does nothing to ameliorate the underlying issues that led to self-harm in the first place. A vicious cycle can follow, with self-loathing, judgment from others, and an increase in depression and anxiety. In fact, the risk for eventual suicide increases following each subsequent incident of self-harm. The risks of this behavior can't be discounted, although doctors Morgan and Webb and their team found that only a quarter of children who self-harm present as such to healthcare providers. It's vital that we learn to identify and address this if we want to keep our young people safe. In today's podcast, we're going to speak with Daniela Luis Evenio, a licensed clinical social worker at the Guidance Center San Pedro Clinic. Daniela is our certified lead in dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT. DBT is a mental health treatment developed by Dr. Marsha Linehan from the University of Washington. It's been shown to be highly effective with chronically suicidal clients and those who have eating or substance abuse disorders or engage in self-injurious behavior. Daniela treats her highest crisis clients and trains her peers in the provision of DBT care. Welcome, Daniela. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, of course, familiar with your work with DBT from our shared roles at the Guidance Center. But for our audience, will you please tell them a little bit about yourself? Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here talking about this very important topic. Um, Again, my name is Daniela. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I've been at the Guidance Center for just over four years, and I work in the San Pedro Clinic. Excellent. Thank you. So, Daniela, you're our DBT lead. Uh, Clearly, these clients who are in crisis are interesting to you, but what is it about your practice and the kids you've seen in your work that led you to be interested in uh, finding new modalities to treat them? Yeah, so in my time as a clinician, I think it's become increasingly common to see these problems of cutting, suicidality, and and these other um, impulsive high-risk behaviors. And when I had the opportunity to become trained in DBT, I jumped on it right away because it, it is very scary to not know what to do. And it's very scary for the families. It's also very scary as a new clinician. So um getting trained in this modality really allowed me to have a guideline for, um, uh, you know, an evidence-based practice for helping these youth. These kids that we worry so much about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, You know, I think that it's a common misperception or misconception amongst people that people who self-harm, they must enjoy pain. Um, They must have a different pain threshold or get pleasure out of being hurt. 
I remember, and this harkens way back to the early days of my clinical practice, I had a day treatment client who um, cut quite a lot um, and deeply uh, her arms and her legs. Um, and her parent, her father in this case, was absolutely convinced she simply enjoyed the sight of blood. Um, and that she was somehow aroused by that. So rather than a supportive response, she was really perceived as deviant uh, for that behavior. So what do you say in response to this misconception? You've seen these kids who do self-harm. Do do they self-harm because it gives them pleasure? No, I don't think that's the case at all. I think that's definitely a misconception. Um, Typically, when we see self-harm, it's um, because they're trying to escape some sort of emotional pain. Um, It's, you know, typically they don't know how to cope, and they see this as a way to get some immediate relief um, without regard for really knowledge of what the long-term negative consequences might be. So it's not that they have a different pain threshold? No. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Um... You know, and all the research, and this makes sense, but suggests that the behavior really is a symptom. It's a symptom of a mental or emotional health problem, uh, not a standalone disorder on its own, perhaps. So, you know, I know all of our clients are different, um, so I'm not asking you to put them all in, in one nutshell, but what kinds of backgrounds or diagnoses do you see or tend to see in your clients who self-harm? What gets them to that point? It can really range from a variety of things, anywhere from any history of abuse or trauma or current abuse or dysfunction in the family or in the home. Um, It can also be depression or anxiety, low self-esteem, or maybe feeling rejected or um, lacking a sense of belonging either in their families or in the community or society at large. What kinds of sort of diagnoses do they tend to have then? Yeah, we see a lot of PTSD or trauma diagnoses, depression, anxiety. um, And then with the older populations, we see borderline personality disorder as well. I certainly read quite a lot about borderline personality disorder as I was reading the literature. Um, And that's not a diagnosis, I think, that's probably familiar to most people, but you want to talk a little bit about what the hallmark of that is, um, because it is so often linked to self-harming behavior? Sure. Um, Borderline personality disorder, or BPD, is really hallmarked by um, emotional dysregulation or really uh, having a lot of difficulty in, in managing emotions, experiencing emotions in very big ways. And that can lead to problems in all sorts of ways, in in interpersonal relationships, in work relationships, in functioning, in in all of those settings as well. Um, Is there, in your experience, a particular link between self-harm and childhood sexual abuse? And I know I'm asking this question with a bias because that was my area of clinical practice, but I'm curious if you have seen a particular link. Yeah, I can definitely say anecdotally and and with the clients that I've worked, typically when there is childhood sexual abuse, we often see self-harm as well. 
What, what causes that? What do you think would, how do you make sense of the link? Well, I think uh, childhood sexual abuse can lead to all sorts of emotional dysregulation and feeling a lack of, like a sense of lack of control. Um, and those are all the things that we see with self-harm also, right? Um, with the impulsivity of wanting to get immediate relief from this intense emotional pain. So you've talked, mentioned a couple times, and the research references it all the time, but the idea of emotional regulation and how people who engage in self-harm uh, lack the coping skills to be able to tolerate the sort of scope of their distressing feelings. Um, could you, let's start with first, uh, what, what is emotional regulation? What do you mean as a therapist when you say that? Well, emotional regulation is in a nutshell, just the ability to have some sort of control over your emotional state. So if something really distressing happens to you, you know, something, somebody cuts you off on the freeway, you're able to have some control over your emotional state and um, mitigate your reaction. So you're not going to go, you know, um, cuss out the person who cut you off or engage in some sort of road rage. You can calm yourself down. You can continue with your day. People who have problems with emotional regulation often have a really hard time doing that. And so then their reactions to their big emotions end up being very big and often problematic. What, what role does that play then in self-harm? Yeah, so when they experience any sort of distressing event that prompts a really big emotional reaction, it, it's, um, it's hard for them to uh, react in any other way that's not impulsive. They want that immediate release or relief or immediate gratification that the self-harm provides. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned road rage, um, which as an example of... Um, not of emotional dysregulation, but in those cases, the, the dysregulation is externalized, right? They're, they're taking it out on somebody else. Whereas in self-harm, it's internalized and they're actually harming themselves. Um, that's a, so there's a parallel, but they're sort of, um, demonstrated in opposite pathways. Is that kind of your understanding that in some ways it's akin to some of the people who impulsively act out? Yeah, a lot of times people who have um, any sort of emotional regulation can either take it out on themselves or on others in the form of angry outbursts. Gotcha. You know, you also mentioned too that, um, you know, there's an impulsive element to it. And I can see that you don't know when you're going to feel this flood of emotion. Um, and then the sort of maladaptive coping comes in, in the form of self-harm. But I've also seen sort of in my caseload, you know, kids who did also plan for it in some ways, um, like I had a client who would kind of stockpile and hide razor blades so that she, she had the tools if she needed them. So there's an impulsive moment to it as well. But then how do, how do you reconcile the impulsivity and the planning for it? Or was she somewhat unique in that case? No, we definitely see that also. And I think what happens is that 
it becomes their most effective or their safe coping, or not safe because it's not safe, but their go-to coping strategy. While it is maladaptive, it works for them. So then, you know, it, they they hold on to that as sort of like the, um, you know, this is what I'm going to do if I if things get really bad. Um, and so then that is something that we see also. So that there's sort of the anticipation of a crisis and they want to be prepared because Mm -hmm. they know they won't be able to tolerate it. Yeah. And again, it's when they don't know anything else that can be effective in helping them cope, they go back to what they know. How do your clients sort of describe that feeling that they get when they do self-harm then? Um. I think the the main way I've heard it described is um, that immediate relief when the pain stops, the physical pain, they kind of translate to a relief from the emotional pain too. So it's, uh, although it's a cut or whatever it might be, that it bring that it's a feeling of relief afterwards. After the pain stops, yeah. So I think. So I'm glad, so glad we were able to certify you and a number of our staff in DBT, but I think it's a brilliant treatment model. And, you know, I've read a lot of the research supporting it. It's been shown to be very effective with these clients who are so often in crisis. So tough ask, because I know it's a big model with a lot of components to it. But could you please tell us what DBT is and how it works in managing this population? I'll try my best. There is definitely a lot of components to it. Um, The main thing is the dialectical part of it, I think, uh, which is basically the two things that are seemingly opposite can be true and exist at the same time. Um, And the two that we see very commonly come up again and again with DBT are acceptance and change. Um, So the skills that we teach, a part of them focus on accepting reality as it currently is, and then another part focuses on changing the parts that can be changed to help people live the lives that they want to live. And it's uh, commitment-based. You know, we do have a commitment or pre-treatment phase that we work with clients on before they can participate in the model to really make sure that this is something that they're willing to do. It's It's more of a time commitment and it's more work than traditional therapy for the client. Um, They are expected to participate in a skills group once a week where they learn all of the DBT skills, which include interpersonal effectiveness skills, mindfulness, um, distress tolerance skills. And then we have a a parent component too called called Walk the Middle Path that focuses on teaching parents what adaptive teenager typical behaviors are and also what is cause for concern and how to, you know, reach a middle path of agreement to make the family um, system work better. So the the clients participate in the skills group and they participate in individual therapy. And then the therapists also participate in a consultation group with other DBT therapists weekly where we meet to discuss um, basically how to become a more effective therapist for our clients. Is that also because of the the risks involved with this population that we worry so much about their safety? Is that also part of the purpose of the the group consultation to just bring more heads to it? 
Yeah, definitely. That's one part of it is to seek consultation about other approaches or skills or interventions that could be used and also to serve as therapy for the therapist um, where we can seek support because of, you know, the, the um, high stress and high risk that working with this population comes with. So let's uh, say for a moment that I am a client who... Um, I, I cut, um, and you're working with me to do, learn other skills, um, in those moments of emotional distress. What, could you just give us an example of some of the skills you might teach me? Sure. Uh, well, the first thing that I would do is I would ask you what your life worth living would look like. You know, if it's kind of like the miracle question that we sort of, um, so typically ask in therapy, you know, if, everything could go right in your life, what would it be? And get really um, specific detail on that. And then also ask about barriers to achieving that and, and things that are standing in the way. And a lot of times it's behaviors or, or things that are happening that can be changed. And so some of this, the first thing that we focus on is always life-threatening behavior. So if there is active suicidal behavior or self-harm, that is our number one target for treatment. So we would teach distress tolerance skills, things to do instead of the self-harm. We do something called behavioral chain analysis where we focus very specifically on an instance of self-harm or suicidal behavior and um, identify factors that contributed to that and then implement skills to try to resolve those things. So for example, if, if what led to the self-harm was an argument with a parent, then we would talk about, you know, interpersonal effectiveness skills to um, try to communicate more effectively with that parent or try to get our, make ourselves heard in a better way. Maybe we would work with the parent also to teach validation skills. Um, we would teach the client distress tolerance skills, you know, to say like, if this is something that I have to tolerate right now, that is something that I cannot change, then how do I get through this difficult moment without making it worse? Mindfulness is a big part of this as well. Could you talk a little bit or touch on um, the role of mindfulness in DBT? Yeah, mindfulness is seen all throughout. It's really what DBT is based on. So we teach clients mindfulness in order to help them increase awareness of what is actually happening in their present moment. Oftentimes, um, when we ask a client, you know, like, how did you go from feeling annoyed to punching the wall? Or how did you go from feeling annoyed to cutting yourself? They, they don't know. They'll say, you know, I really have no idea. That whole, um, that whole time is a blur. And so mindfulness, helping them learn that, helps them increase awareness of what is actually going on, what is it that they're feeling, so that they can intervene at an earlier point. It's like an awareness of what's happening in their own bodies or their own hearts or sort of paying attention to the moment. And to their environment. So it's okay. internal and external, right? So if they notice that something external is happening that is typically um, a prompting event for a big emotional reaction for them, and they start noticing that emotional reaction, that initial annoyance, then they can use 
one of their distress tolerance skills or one, something to get them out of that situation. Maybe they step away, maybe they distract or whatever it is before it's too late, before the problem has already gotten worse. Gotcha. Could you just, I mean, just for our audience, give us one or two distress tolerance skills. What might you teach me? Mm-hmm. So the we could all benefit from that, by the way. <laughs> oh, definitely. I think everyone can benefit from all of the DBT skills. So one of the distress tolerance skills that we teach is called TIP. It's an acronym, T-I-P-P. The first, the T stands for temperature. And what we focus on is decreasing the temperature of the body. In the skills group, we do this with ice packs or cold water or ice. Um, and the at-home People can do it with bowls of ice, cold water, again, cold water bottles, whatever really they have access to in the moment. And the I stands for intense exercise. So um, the goal of that is to increase the heart rate. So we would ask the clients to do some jumping jacks for a couple of minutes or run up and down the stairs for a couple of minutes to increase the heart rate and reset the nervous system. And then the first P is for paced breathing. And the way that we do this is that we teach a breathing technique focused on helping the clients regulate breathing in times of distress. Um, The technique is um, you let all of the air out of your mouth, you inhale through your nose for four seconds, you hold for seven seconds, and then you would exhale for eight seconds. And in the group, we would guide the clients through practicing several rounds of this so that they could see um, and really experience the effects. We would ask for a, a rating of their distress before the skills and also after the skills. And then the last P is for progressive muscle relaxation. So in this one, we would guide the clients through tensing and releasing um, each muscle group of their body. And the purpose of this is because with anxiety and distress, we often see muscle tension. And this helps, this relaxation technique really helps to decrease some of that muscle tension and um, regulate the distress. This is very interesting. And I've certainly, I've seen the workbook that goes along with DBT and there are so many tools in there. So is it in effect that uh, through the process of the treatment, I might, I could ultimately identify that I'm getting to a point of dysregulation, but identify it before I get there and use these skills to replace my cutting behavior? Yeah, that's ultimately the goal. Yeah. Excellent. So what about psychotropic medications? I'm, uh, we're going to be talking in our next pot podcast about psychiatric meds. So I'm curious, uh, literature certainly talks quite a bit about how, for example, people with bipolar disorder, medication is often involved in their treatment. So I'm just curious what role, if any, do meds play in the treatment of children who self-harm? Yeah, there's no specific medication that will treat self-harm specifically per se, Um, but the medication can definitely help address the underlying um, disorder or mood conditions to allow the client to be able to more fully participate in the treatment. For example, an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety to help with the trauma um, that is making me dysregulated? Yeah, absolutely. And, And by regulating that, then you're more 
you're better prepared to participate in the treatment and use the interventions and skills. So kind of like a leg up so I can, yeah. gives me a head start on doing the skills. In other That's words. exactly right. Yes. Research suggests that persons who engage in self-harm using clandestine means or with secrecy are often highest at risk for eventual suicidal ideation. The secrecy suggests a lack of adequate social supports and can be justified by the reactions of those around them to the self-harming behavior. Doctors Emma Nielsen and Ellen Townsend write in the Archives of Suicide Research that reducing negative emotions was by far the primary reason cited by individuals who engage in self-harm, followed distantly by hoping to create a positive emotion such as relief or avoidance of aversive social situations. Only 3.9% of respondents endorsed attention-seeking as the motivation for their self-harm. By contrast, they found a commonly cited motivation among the general public and in the broader literature is the elicitation of a caring response from others. Self-harm is seen then as attention-seeking, depicted as a mean of manipulating and coercing others. They point out that even if there is an element to the self-harming behavior that is attention-seeking in nature, this does not invalidate the distress associated with self-harming or reduce the need for helping responses. This is supported by the Pediatric Mental Health Institute blog, where they write, attention is one of the fundamental needs of a typically developing relational human being. Seeking attention is a behavior that often indicates a teenager needs more interpersonally than they are currently receiving. In other words, even if the self-harm is motivated by attention-seeking, that does not mitigate the need for a supportive response. The concern, of course, is that this supportive response is not always forthcoming. Daniela, being honest, some people would perhaps rightfully consider the behaviors associated with self-harm as strange. Binging and purging, making yourself vomit. Nobody enjoys vomiting, cutting your arms or legs until they bleed, biting or hitting yourself. These behaviors just seem so crazy to most people. And I think there's a degree of safety sort of in blaming the victim. Um, you can separate yourself in some ways. And, you know, I recall, gosh, a client I had very early in my career, I still remember her name, obviously I'm not going to say it, but um, I lived in such fear as I was treating her um, because she was chronically suicidal and she was impulsively suicidal. So she would make these suicidal gestures um, and by gesture, I mean, they were, they were attempts, but they were generally non-lethal attempts. They might have been if she made a mistake, but she would take, for example, 15 aspirin or so they were dangerous and they were taken seriously, but she wasn't, it's like she was playing chicken with it is how her dad described it. Um, but it, it was always very impulsive. Her triggers were fights with her mom. And their relationship was very volatile. And her parents just had such a hard time 
being supportive around it. They would get really angry with her when she did these. She was in and out of the psych hospitals. Um, and again, it was always so impulsive. She could leave my office and be very stable and calm. But you always knew at any moment if circumstances change and she's in a fight with her mom, she could become impulsively suicidal in that moment. Um, so we worked very hard with her. She did quite well in treatment. But um, you know, it was very difficult to get her parents past the point where they believed the behaviors were anything but manipulative. Like they looked at them instead of them, the behavior striking fear in them, it struck resentment in them that she's coercing us. She's being manipulative. Um, and had a really hard time getting them past that. Um, so in some ways our treatment ended up being about what are we, how do we make you okay? So you can manage this environment sort of despite them. Cause we really couldn't get them to a place of being supportive of her. Um, and again, she did quite well in treatment by the end, but it wasn't, it remained an absence of support from her parents. So what do you say to people who say, you're cutting, that's just manipulative. You want attention. Uh, if you really wanted to kill yourself, you wouldn't have taken aspirin. You would have done whatever. What do you say when they say these behaviors are just manipulative? Yeah, well, the first thing that comes to mind is um, maybe in some way it is attention seeking. Most of the time, self harm is not, most of the time, it's very secretive. But even when it is attention seeking, quote unquote, if it's a cry for help, why would we not help? Right? So um, calling it manipulative just adds to the invalidation that the person experiences, and it doesn't actually help to solve the problem. I think a better approach would be trying to understand what the function of the behavior is. What is actually the person seeking? And why? I love how you said that, that if it, even if it were attention seeking, that doesn't, um, that is still something we need to pay attention to. Yeah, that, definitely. Um, you, as you rightfully pointed out, these harmful behaviors are very often kept secret, uh, long sleeves, so you won't see the cuts on the arms or, um, for parents, teachers, nurses, etc. what warning signs might there be? What should we as a community be on the lookout for as it relates to self-harm? I would say the first thing is just uh, a sudden change in behavior. You know, if the child previously, you know, had no problem going swimming or showing their body in a certain way, changing in the locker room at school, and then suddenly is avoiding doing those kinds of things or wearing long sleeves during hot days, things like that, that would definitely be a warning sign um, that would prompt some sort of concern. Also, any sort of other secretive behaviors, you know, isolating or becoming more withdrawn than usual or more quiet than usual. Doesn't that describe teenagers? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I suppose it does. Um, I think it's just, uh, it's just something to always be on the lookout for. Um, and, and, you know, if you have questions, you can always consult with professionals or your clients, teachers about what's typical for adolescents, what they observe, 
um, and outside of the home as well. I think to some degree, it's probably knowing your child. Um, and so then looking for changes yeah, in them. Definitely. Um, so if a parent suspects that their child might be self-harming, uh, what would you advise them to do? I think the most important thing would be to try to be empathetic and understanding um, and to let them know that even if you don't understand why they're cutting, that you're going to support them and, and be there for them regardless. Um, try to avoid judgments or punishments, you know, like you have to stop this or you can't go out with your friends. Ultimatums typically don't work. And then if at all possible, seek mental health services. What would you advise them not to do? Um, you know, again, this brings to mind uh, another family I worked with. The parents were so terrified um, by their child's cutting behavior that um, they took the door off her bedroom. Um, she was subjected to body inspections. Um, and we really had to sort of work on that. And sort of what's your take on that? I can understand a parent's fear, but are there things that parents should not do? I guess you mentioned one, don't punish. Um, but what else, you know, what else is there in their fears to sort of keep them safe? What would you advise them not to do? Yeah, I think everything that you mentioned and also just um, anything that would like is a judgment or a criticism, right? Um, it's the opposite of what we want to do. We really want to talk to the teen to help get an understanding of what it is that they're going through that's causing these behaviors. Now, what about mental health providers? You know, I, I, I like to believe that we're all well-intended, um, but how can we better serve this population? I think it's really important to also get a really good understanding of the function of the self-harm. Again, um, you know, like, what is it that this teen is specifically wanting to get by doing this or seeking by doing this behavior? Um, also to continuously check in and again in a very empathetic and safe way to check in to constantly ask check in about suicidal thoughts too not all self-harm is connected to suicidal thoughts but it's always good to check in constantly just to make sure so I'm going to talk about you for a second. Um, you serve a very difficult population. You know, a community mental health population is difficult anyway. And by being a DBT expert, um, you get these clients who are so often in crisis um, and demanding of your attention and your worry and your time and the phone check-ins. And um, so how do you manage that? And what are the bright sides in that work? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the consultation team, the DBT consultation team is great to seek support and get consultation for all of these things. If I'm um, feeling frustrated or burnt out, you know, getting a different perspective or ideas for interventions can really help with that. And then there are lots of bright sides. I think back to clients that I've worked with throughout my time as a therapist who, in the beginning were so hopeless and their families were so hopeless that things could ever improve. And they just, you know, there was no will to live or no joy or positivity in their lives. And then getting to witness their transformation, their journey throughout treatment to finding bits of joy 
return to their lives or finding sense of purpose, creating their life worth living and going on to do things like make friends or, you know, get a job or pursue their passions, go to college, things like that is just the most rewarding feeling. So the clients themselves give you hope. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think they're lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Daniela, for sharing your ex- expertise as a DBT clinician, working with a very high-risk population. We've learned so much today about something that, for most people, is very difficult to talk about, children who hurt themselves deliberately. If the outcome is that even one child who needs help might now get it, that would be a very positive thing. So I thank you. Thank you for having me. Please join me next for episode 15 when we speak with Dr. Rubina Najib about the use of psychotropic medications in the treatment of children. In My Backyard is brought to you by the Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Trisha Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.